For though I am free from falling, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not, be, wait, no, to the, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we and we are imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Don't worry, we won't disqualify you, Danny. <clears throat> Thank you, Danny. That was the best one yet. Guys, Danny didn't have anybody to read this week. She couldn't find a volunteer, so she bit the bullet. And thank you, Danny. Danny doesn't know how to read, so thank good. Let's give Danny a hand. Come on. Yes. Yes, considering she can't read, that was a really good job. Um, all right. Now is the time where, if you haven't already, you can dismiss your kids. They can go back to um, the front door there. Milena is there waving her hand if you want to. Bring your kids back and get them checked in. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and bring us into, um, into our sermon here, starting off with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are a good Father, and when we see and remember your holiness, we see the source of our life and being, and the completion of all the things we most deeply long for. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you for your promise that you will build your church, and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. May we rest securely in that promise as we strive to bring heaven to earth. Give us this day our daily bread. We ask God to be replenished and fed by you, the only source of the bread of life. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. May we embody your grace and mercy that in humility and love forgives and emboldens the forgiven to not walk in shame, but to bask in the freedom of being seen in our sin and yet not rejected and scorned, but fully loved. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Standing firmly in our identity as your children, chosen and loved, let us not take advantage of your love and the staggering freedom that it affords us. Let us not turn inward and forsake those around us and in futility chase after cheap counterfeits of the joy and the fulfillment that you've already promised us. Lead us gently back to the streams of life that flow only from you that we may be filled to overflowing, and that the outpouring of your life may spread wherever we go. For to use the kingdom and the power 
and glory forever. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so, so far this is where we've gone in this series. We've had four weeks. We're going through 1 Corinthians, verses 19 through 27. Um, we started off in verse 19, which says, For though I'm free, to all, free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. This is the idea that our freedom, we're not only free from the consequences of sin, from condemnation, from judgment, we're also free from having to fulfill ourselves. We're, we're free from, from having to search for the thing that's going to fill us. We're free because we've already been given that in Christ. And so we are free to lay those things down that otherwise we would want to be fulfilled by in order to serve others. Verse 20 was being committed to the church. That's what we titled it. Um, Paul says, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. Those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Um, and in his context, this was going to Jews who were still um, waiting for the Messiah. And he was telling them, kind of, he's, he's already come. But he didn't go in there and say, look, you need to stop making those sacrifices. Stop doing all the feasts, all of your rites and rituals. Like, come on, you noobs. This is like, Jesus is here. The Messiah came. You didn't, you didn't see it coming. Um, instead, he came to them as a Jew. Um, verse 21, we talked about being committed to outsiders. Paul says, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Um, it can be easy to stay inside of these circles that we're comfortable within. Um, for a lot of us, we grew up in churches, and so it's easy to kind of stay in that circle, whether it's because we're afraid of um, not knowing what to say to somebody who has a different ideology than me, not knowing if I can really preach the gospel or, or defend the gospel, or, or just what do I do in this weird and awkward situation that I'm usually not in. Um, but as it says here, and, and as our model as an outpost, as recipients of the gospel and as those called to bear the gospel, we're also committed to those that are outside of the church. Uh, and then last week, in our fourth week, John preached about being committed to the weak and the strong. In that verse, Paul says, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. John talked about how we don't take the freedom and the strength and the confidence that we've been given in Christ and, and use that to assert our rights or to tell other people, you can't tell me what to do because I'm free and this is what I'm allowed to do. I'm under the law of grace. This is our, much like verse 19, being free to serve, this is where we are committed to laying down our strength and considering those around us who are weak. If, I'm, if I want to go out to a bar and I'm with a friend who struggles with alcohol, I'm just not going to do it because it's not as important as the gospel to me. It's the basic idea there. This week, we're landing on verse 23, where Paul starts to say the reason 
for all of those things, the reason that we're doing all of those things. And he says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Now, I, I don't know how that verse strikes all of you. Like, the first half I'm reading through, okay, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Yep, I grew up in the evangelical church. I got that, I'm with you. And then he says that I may share with them in its blessings. Like, that's why he's doing it. For the sake of the gospel, but that I may share with them in its blessings. Um, I grew up in a evangelical, maybe a little bit even conservative background, and we don't talk about doing things to get blessings. Maybe if you grew up in the charismatic church or Pentecostal church, you might be more familiar than that. You might be claiming your blessings, but it feels almost wrong to say that as somebody who grew up like doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Um, so that kind of took me aback for a second, and, and uh, so I was kind of thinking about why um, another verse came to mind, um, and it was Hebrews 12.2. Um, I didn't think, oh yes, Hebrews 12.2. I was, I'm a worship leader, again. So what I thought was, oh yeah, there's this verse that says something about the joy set before him. Google, okay, it's Hebrews 12.2. Um, thank God for Google. And, <laughs> but this is what Hebrews 12.2 said. It says that looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It says that Jesus endured the cross, though he despised the shame of the cross. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Not because... He was just bearing down and doing the hard thing that had to be done because it was what was right, but because of the joy set before him. It's a good, good reminder for me and probably some others of us here today that we don't live to fulfill the gospel. We don't live to enact the gospel, but we live out of the gospel which has been fulfilled by Jesus and it's it's a blessing to us. So this week, as we're talking about being committed to the gospel, it's important, I think, that we, um, especially as we're moving forward with this outpost model that in many ways we've already been doing for years, but we're kind of just putting words to, it's going to be super important for us to, to remember that this is the foundation, this is the reason that we do all of it because it's what gives us life and it's what we can give life from. It has to be our foundation. Because for those of us who call ourselves followers of Christ, that's what it is. The gospel is our foundation. It's, it's what the people of the Old Testament looked forward to and hoped for in faith. It's the climax of the entire arc of the Bible. The whole of the Bible hinges on it. It's the reason for everything that we believe about the world as it is. And it's our hope for everything that we can't see. Whether that's the future, whether it's heaven. But if anything takes priority over the gospel, we lose sight of the reason we're doing all of this in the first place. Um, so when I was dating Brittany, uh, we were long distance. 
I would go out to see her in Colorado like once a month. And this one time, uh, I was going out to visit. Her uncle was in town, and he's a pro snowboarder. And so he was going to take us, he, he took us out to this uh, mountain to go snowboarding. And I was like super excited about it because I had never snowboarded because I'm from Tucson. And so I was like, sweet, this is my opportunity. And I can like learn some stuff. And I remember driving out, as we were driving out, I could like see the mountain off in the distance. And, um, and I just really got it in my head that I, I was going to do a 360 that day. Not just, like a little, not just like a little twirl, but like, I'm talking like big ramp, big air, board grab, 360 all the way around. And that it was going to be so cool because I was going to be able to say the first day that I snowboarded, I did a 360. And honestly, I, I, I have a lot of fun pushing myself and seeing what I can do. So there was a lot of pure and innocent motivations here and some not as much. Maybe, you know, that would have been pretty sweet to say. Uh, you might be able to guess where this story is going, but I'm going to tell you. Um, we basically get there. I get all strapped in, get my gear, do like a little couple bunny slopes. I'm like, okay, I think I kind of, I basically got this. I think this might be happening. We ride up the hill, and then I see um, this little series of three kind of like half pipe type of ramps. I'm like, all right, that's it. This is my chance. That's where it's happening. So we get off. I start going down the hill and like picking up some speed. And then I'm realizing like, oh, I actually don't know how to steer when I'm going faster than like two miles per hour. So one ramp comes and goes, and I'm still going straight. The next ramp comes and goes. And I'm like, okay, I'm just going to have to commit to this. So this is the last one coming up. I crank in on my toes. I go too far that way, crank in on my heels, come back this way, and barely make it back at the top of the ramp, and then just like throw my body around. And I start spinning, and for a second, I'm like, this is it. It's happening. Um, but then, um, instead of spinning like this, as you would like to do during a 360, I start, uh, my, my board leaves the ramp, and then I just go completely horizontal. And so I'm just spinning like this, looking up at the sky. And uh, for any of you who have been in this type of situation, you know that this is the worst part because this is where you have the time to think about how much it's going to hurt when you come down. Um, I had enough time to pray to God and be like, Lord, I know what's about to happen. Please, though, don't let me fracture anything or, or get knocked out. Please just like, let me live. I had a helmet on, thank God, because I was with a pro snowboarder. I don't know if I would have had that foresight if I was not. Um, but I had enough time to do that, and then, amen, and then sit there and think, yeah, yep, this is going to hurt. And then, bam, like, hard, melted, and refrozen snow, and it, there was an audible noise of just, and, and then an audible gasp from everybody around. Um, and then I just laid there for a second, and Brittany's uncle comes over, slides in, and like starts checking me, like, can you feel this? Can you feel that? Um, I ended up being okay. Uh, 
I didn't hit on my head or anything, so that was good. But I definitely bruised my hip pretty severely, um, but was kind of playing it off because I was with a pro snowboarder, so I, I had to look like I was at least somewhat competent. Uh, which, looking back, was a poor choice because then he's like, "Okay, cool. Well, let's go down the hill. Like, this is a this is a trail I wanted to take you down, which I had no business going down. So for about a mile, with like a throbbing hip bone, I followed after a pro snowboarder on this on this trail that I had no business going down and fell about every like 30 to 50 feet. Um, and uh, and then I basically limped for a few weeks because of the immense pain." Of a swollen hip that actually might have been fractured. I just didn't go to the doctor because I was young. Did I mention I was young when all of this happened?、Um, what does this story have to do with the sermon this week? We, in a lot of ways, are doing something that, as a church, is not the norm. It's kind of less common to be a church on the outposts, to be committed to outsiders.、Um, And there's not a lot of precedent for a lot of the things that we're doing. There's some. There are people we can look to, and there are systems that we can try to follow. But we need to have the foundation of the gospel because that is the precedent that actually is going to lead us to further the gospel and to do things that are more difficult and do things that do have less precedent. I had no foundation whatsoever in snowboarding, and I really badly wanted to do the 360 so bad that I just went for it. And thank God there was nobody where I landed, because I could have crushed a child, or I could have decapitated somebody swinging wildly through the air. And that's the same thing that we can do if we're aiming to do things that are good and difficult. But we lose sight of the foundation of why we're doing it. We need to be committed to, gospel, to the gospel because we need to hear it constantly. And the more we preach it, the more we hear it. We need to hear it constantly because it's counterintuitive for a few reasons. First of all, it's it's kind of scandalous because just anybody. Can believe in Jesus and be saved. Hitler could have believed in Jesus and be saved. We don't know. Donald Trump, Joe Biden, even Andrea Ocasio Cortez, or Bernie. Any of these people. Think about the person in your mind who you would be fine if they were gone from the face of the earth. That person is loved by God, and he longs that they will return to Him. He longs that they will receive the gospel. The gospel is counterintuitive because that anger and that justice complex that rises up in us when we think about the person that we don't see why they should receive justice. It tells us that that's that's the status that we have as well. It makes us look at our sin,、it、makes us look at it for what it is when that's not what we want to do, and it even tells us that our sin is greater than we even know, than we think. 
That's not what we want to hear. It's not easy to hear. We can talk about our trauma. We can talk about the reasons we've done things um, that we've done and, and rationalize for them. But we can't go back and undo the pain and the damage that they've caused. And something needs to be done about that. The gospel is counterintuitive because it invites us to hope in such a deep and profound love that it's kind of terrifying to accept. Because it's easier to be comfortable with the idea of that love not existing because then we won't have to hope for it and be disappointed. We've all been hurt by people we love. We've all hurt people that we love. And it's difficult to truly awaken ourselves to the hope that it might be, it might be real and actually that God's telling us it is real. Now, I'm saying that that kind of love is, is counterintuitive because we don't see it, we feel like we don't see it in this world at all. Um, but I think we actually, there are glimpses that we do see of it. And it's in our relationships and it's even something that we, we give. Um, here's the part of the sermon where I'm going to show you some pictures of my dogs. Um, this is, up on the right side, this is Billy. He's 11 years old. He's a pit bull mix. And then right next to him is Charlie Meatball. She's four months old. We got her at five weeks old. Um, and I have kind of a one-sided relationship with these dogs as I kind of sat down and thought of it because um, Billy has allergies. And that means that every day he has to get a pill that costs two $2.50 for that individual pill every day. Um, and we have to give him special food because of his allergies. He can't eat certain things. That food costs more money. Um, we got to take him to the vet every once in a while to get shots. Charlie, we just got her, and so we've had to give, bring her to the vet multiple times to get all of her vaccinations, get all of her tests and samples. Um, they both require that we give them food every day. We give them water every day. We take them out, make sure they get enough exercise, make sure that they learn how to uh, do the things that we want them to. We have to invest all this time. And really all they give back to us is just to kind of be there and look cute and just kind of be around, be a presence, maybe cuddle every once in a while. Um, a lot of times the Bible talks about God's relationship to us in terms of a father and his children. And it's a beautiful analogy, and it's also one that I can't really speak that much to because I don't have kids, but I have a couple of dogs. And I'm going to, hear me out, hear me out, I'm going to tell you why there's actually a couple of analogies that are better with dogs and with children. So, like I said, <laughs> we have to do absolutely everything for these dogs. There's never going to be a point 
where Charlie starts figuring out how to feed herself. There's never going to be a point where we would ever give Billy that option because he would eat himself to death and probably suffocate um, because there's so much food in his stomach that it was crowding his lungs. Um, they are never going to grow up and be able to take care of us. They are, they are so dependent on us that if for some reason Brittany and I both had simultaneous heart attacks and died and were left alone in our house for weeks, and this is a little bit morbid, the dogs would only survive as long as our meat would make them survive. <laughs> and otherwise, that's it. We, we were here before them. We're going to be here after, long after they're gone. That's one way that analogy is actually a little bit better. The other way is that there is, we'll call it a chasm of intellect that the Bible talks about between us and God. And while you will often have that with a little kid, there's a point where the kid is going to get smarter than you, either because they are just smart or because you're going to start getting less smart as you get older. That's just the thing that happens, and it's unfortunate. Um, but with these dogs, God willing, they will never be smarter than us. Um, I love them so much, but they're stupid. They are pretty dumb. And that's maybe part of what makes them even more lovable to me. But this is what Psalm 103 says about that kind of relationship, verses 10 to 14. It says, God doesn't deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. I know what these dogs are capable of and what they're not. And I'm not disappointed that they're never going to go get a job and start contributing. Because I know they just can't do that. And yet, these dogs, I, I love so much. I really love them. And they're dogs. If I can love dogs like this in a way that costs me a lot mentally, financially, physically. How much more could a perfect, good, and loving God love me? Um, I'm just going to show you the other dog picture because I had another one. This is uh, Billy <laughs> laying in his favorite sunspot in the backyard and teaching Charlie that it's pretty cool. And this is her kind of just going with it because she likes being around Billy, but she would rather be jumping around and probably jumping on top of him. It's also one of her favorite things to do. So, that was the dog portion. Um, if we're going to be committing ourselves to the gospel, we should know what the gospel is. And one of the lofty goals that I set for myself this week was to come up with a great, succinct, and comprehensive statement of the gospel that we could just go back to, pull up whenever we need to remember what our foundation is, to remind ourselves. Um, and 
I don't know why I set that kind of a goal for myself because when you think about it, there have been people that have been doing this, committing their whole lives to the gospel for all of recorded history. And we don't have that sentence floating around somewhere. So maybe this is just another example of the snowboard story for me. I push myself to try to do something really great and maybe I don't always get there. But as I was spending time trying to figure out what I wanted to say, what, what that sentence might be, um, I kept going back to this quote. That's one of my favorite quotes that, that if we've talked at length pretty much any time, I've probably said it. Um, and it's a quote by Tim Keller. It's from The Meaning of Marriage, which I didn't know until I had to Google it to make sure I had the words right, because I haven't read The Meaning of Marriage, but you should totally read it. Um, his quote is that the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. I'm going to read that again. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Um, I often think about what we're going to think in 50 years, or if we're not here, what people are going to look back and think about us. What things they're going to point at and be able to say, wow, I can't believe they were doing that. I can't believe they believed that. I can't believe they did that and everybody was okay with it. It's inevitable that that's going to happen. We can look back at generations before us and think, how could they have possibly been okay with, with doing this? And those are just the sins that we don't know we're committing. The gospel says that it, does, it not only points out that we are the heirs of people who were fallen, that we were in their line, but we also all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that oftentimes the things that we're even afraid that we might be, or the things that we're afraid that might be true about us, maybe they are true. And it also says that when Jesus Christ looks at us, when God looks at us through the blood of Christ, he sees us as pure. He sees us as forgiven. And while we were still sinners, in full view of all of our darkness, all of our sin, he chose us and he loved us. And it was because of his love that he sent his son to die on the cross so that we could be restored to him. And that's something that we need to commit ourselves to remembering. Because it's very, it's so easy to lose sight of the staggering love that God has for us. And it's when we can live from that, it's when we can truly accept it, that we can then be filled and we can give that same kind of love to other people, even though they might take advantage of us, even though they might 
hurt us, even though they might not deserve it. If we're going to be a church that's committed to being an outpost, we need to do it because we're committed to the gospel. So that we can share with all these people in the blessings of the gospel. So I took a little bit of time and thought of, read through, talked to some friends about what, what are the blessings of the gospel. Came up with just a short list of a few of those things. Um, some of the blessings of the gospel. Freedom. Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. So stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That's freedom, not just from condemnation, not just from judgment, not from being held to the standard, but freedom from having to fulfill ourselves. Freedom from having to find happiness for ourselves and make sure that we don't lose it. It's freedom to rest in the promise of heaven. The promise that God has said, I've I'm building my church, and the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against it. I'm bringing my kingdom here. I'm bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth, and it's, it's going to happen. We can just rest in that. It's freedom that says, because I have been sacrificed for, because I have been set free, I will gladly do the same for others, because if it gives them that same freedom, then not only do they get to experience it, but also those blessings continue out exponentially and the kingdom of God comes closer to earth. Blessings of the gospel, abundant life. In John 10.10, it says, he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And that might mean being on the top of the mountain, feeling great, Things are going well. Um, I'm feeling blessed. Everything's working out. And it also might mean that in the depths of sorrow and in the depths of pain, betrayal, and mourning, that I don't have to be afraid that these things are ultimate and that this is the end and that I might be destroyed. That that I might not find happiness again because God has already promised me himself and he promised he's not going to leave, he's not going to forsake me. An abundant life is being able to sit in that with our friends as well and be able to give even when we don't feel like we have anything other than our presence to give to them. We cannot leave and we cannot forsake our friends when they're in the, in the depths of darkness. Blessings of the gospel are redemption and restoration. Um, the idea of the kingdom of God coming to earth. God said that he's going to redeem all things, and he said he's going to restore all things. Those are things that we can hope in. Those are things that we can bank on, which brings me to the next blessing, which is, which is just hope. Right now, it feels like hope is in short supply. Um, we have long had the identity as a church of being a place where people can come 
who aren't feeling positive and encouraging, and we'll sit with them in their doubt, we'll sit with them in their pain, we'll be there, we're not going to shy away from talking about those things and, and walking through those kinds of things together with one another. Um, and I think that's a really important part of our identity, and I think it's going to continue to be. But interestingly, I've, what I've seen happening a lot lately is God steering us to preach about the hope of the gospel to, to you guys, to the church, and also to the people outside of the church who, to, to whom that's kind of like shocking. There's so many things, there's so many reasons to not be hopeful right now. Whether it's all the crazy storms that are, that are happening, whether it's climate change, whether it's politics, whether it's like wars that are maybe going to happen, there are so many reasons right now to feel despair and to feel angry, to feel like it's not actually getting better and maybe it won't. And as Christians and as people committed to the gospel, we actually have something that is startling to present at a time like this, which is hope that doesn't, doesn't depend on whether our ideology wins out. Hope that doesn't depend on whether the person we hope gets voted in gets voted in. Hope that says that even though kingdoms rise and fall, we have a hope that can rest secure because we worship an all-powerful and loving creator who says he loves us and he's promised us a hope and a future. We have hope in a world that is increasingly being subjected to and becoming deeply, painfully familiar with despair and anger and, and division. <clears throat> Think of how unusual it would be to watch somebody. There's a reason these kinds of videos blow up on the internet when there's a Black Lives Matter and an All Lives Matter protest happening across the street and one person comes over and they hug the other person. There's a reason where we hope, we, we, so we say our hope in humanity is restored and we see something like that. It's because we can see that this isn't good and that that can't be sustainable because if one side has to win, that means something pretty unfortunate for the other side. And if all of these people aren't just going to go away that I disagree with, then what has to happen in order for the world to get better? They seem like they're still going to be there forever. We have a hope that says no matter what happens in America, no matter what happens in the world, no matter what happens to the world, we still have a God we can trust in. We're not threatened by the things that the world is threatened by because God has promised us redemption and restoration. He has looked at us in all of our sin and loved us. He has seen us where we're at, seen all the things that we're afraid might be true and all the things we have no idea are even unfortunately true 
about us. And I, he says, he loves us. He told his, Jesus told his disciples um, on the night that he was betrayed that we needed to remember him and that we could do so when we broke bread together. And that when we did that, we can remember that his body was broken for us. And that when we drink, we remember his blood poured out for us. And that we should do that in remembrance of him. In a few minutes, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. We're going to enter into a time of confession. Um, and we're going to worship in a few different ways. We're going to worship by taking the Lord's Supper. We're going to worship by singing together. And we're going to worship by giving of the things that God has given to us, including finances. And do that as a proclamation of worship and a proclamation that we believe all things are God's and nothing that can be taken away from us can take that away. He's the giver and the taker of all things. Um, as we go into this time of confession, I want us to come to God. And if we have things that we need to confess that we've done, that we've sinned against him, sure, let's bring that. That is important. But I, I also want us to focus on just confessing to God that it's, it's really hard to accept the kind of love that he's offering us, to accept that that is actually true. Not just because we're afraid that it's true, but because it also means that if you love us that much and you gave all of this for us, we owe you everything. And if we accept that love, it has staggering implications for the rest of our life. And so coming to him in confession, let's ask him to seek, to search us out, and ask him for the courage to even hope, the courage to take the freedom that he's given us, the abundant life, to work toward redemption and restoration as his hands and feet here on earth and to hope for the things that he has promised us. Let's confess that that is difficult, but in repentance, let's come before him and tell him that that is what we want to do. We want to serve him. We want to live out of abundance and not out of attempts at self-fulfillment um, self and our attempts to try to save ourselves from things that might threaten us. I'll, I'll start us with a prayer, and then we'll take a couple of minutes of confession, and then, um, and then Jason's going to start us off with some worship. Father, we thank you so much that 
the love that you have for us. The calling that you've called us to are worth so much more than anything else that we could commit ourselves to. Um, We thank you for the unique identity that you've given us as a church. And God, we pray that we would not lose sight of the reason for all of it. We pray that we would remember to stay founded in your gospel and everything it means for us, about us. And that we would take what you've given us and be good stewards of it. That we would remember we can come to you boldly because of your love for us. That when we fail, that you're not looking down on us. You're not disappointed. You're looking at us with open arms and with love. So we come before you, God, to be with you, to confess, knowing that you are good and faithful to forgive us.